Good morning, everyone. Good morning. A joy to see everybody. Praising the Lord for uh, his mercies this day, which are, are going to be evident, and um, we, we, we are excited and rejoicing in that. Uh, this is a milestone for us as a church. This is, from my understanding, the earliest service time in the history of the church, is it? 8.30 a.m.? Okay. Wow, super early. And all of this is in preparation for our equipping hour that's going to start at 7.30 in just a matter of a couple weeks. So, and that is a joke, for sure. <laughs> um, what a blessing to sing to the Lord. And, um, you know, I, I just wanted to rejoice in your faithfulness to make yet another additional sacrifice for the sake of praising Christ. He's worth it in every single way. And um, we are, I, I think, a, a church that tends to appreciate the, the later service time in the morning. And so um, it is a sacrifice to some degree to, to get up early. And I especially just want to um, uh, share a, a word of gratitude to all those with young families, because that's no small thing either. For, for those of you who are single or maybe some of you newlyweds, it's like, oh, man, it's early. We got to... Get up and get there, but oh, when you have three or four kids, that's what I'm talking about. That's, a, that's the real deal, trying to get everybody ready, get breakfast in their belly, and make sure that they're content. Well, I also want to express my appreciation to Praise Chapel for uh, blessing us with the, the use of their beautiful facility uh, indefinitely until uh, the problems on the other uh, side of the building get worked out, uh, and we're hopeful uh, that they will, but uh, we'll wait and see what the Lord has for us. And I do want to draw your attention to some banners that are over here on the right-hand side. Uh, man, they are something else. Um, Fast Signs and Brea designed them and, and made them for us, and they're, they're on retractable, uh, retractable things. And so if your kids come up and want to play with them, just, just a warning these things snap down and then you can risk breaking the retractors. And so I'm sharing that with everybody because parents, you will be liable. You will be liable to replace our staying. They're not cheap, but um, no, they're, they're, they're wonderful. And um, I do have a few comments uh, about those uh, just to start with. Um, these ministry pillars... Um, they're not placed in any specific order. So that, that part, in my obsessive-compulsive nature, I, I wanted to place them in the order that we preach through them. And I fought so hard against that. I said, you know what, we're going we're gonna to intentionally change them up a little bit. Why? Because um, there is no one that we want to focus on singularly. We, they're, they're, they truly do overlap. They're integrated and uh, their, their function really does um, undergird and support everything that we want to do in our church as, as a ministry. We want to be praising, progressing, praying, and preaching. And I share this with you because did you know that there are many people across uh, the, the land in this country, in churches, that could give you no explanation as to the purpose of the church. They would, if, you, if they were asked, they would struggle maybe to come up with some expression. And I rejoice in being at a church where our church family wants to uh, prioritize it. We want to understand the purpose for which we're here. 
And these uh, ministry pillars will certainly allow us to worship God in great measure as they amplify and grow our understanding of what the church is all about. And it's a biblical ministry. And you could use different terms, praying, progressing, praying, preaching. You, um, you know, you could use exalting, worship, uh, progressing. You could use, um, we, if we stick with the ease, uh, edifying, you know, um, or evangelizing. All these are biblical terms, and of course they're supported with scriptures. Um, as I alluded to just a few moments ago, they, they are organic, okay, and they're interrelated, and they naturally feed on one another. For example, praising God with passion should be forefront of our mind when we go out to do evangelism. We're able to see um, how that can have an impact on us because, again, we're, we're called to worship and we want to get others to worship. Praising God with passion can also be at the forefront of our minds um, um, even in prayer, right? We talked about that uh, praising God was certainly um, uh, an aspect of prayer that we want to focus on. And um, there's another crossover with praying to God with fervency. And that comes with supporting the, the preaching ministry of the church. And as I or any man that would ever stand behind this pulpit attempts to preach the word with some level of precision... There's a dependency upon our church family to be praying for us. And um, for my wife, who goes to the Lord in prayer for me all the time, I'm, I'm very thankful for a, a church that would support the preaching ministry. Um, we, we feature the importance of prayer. I know our, our praise and worship team, they, they pray before they practice. They pray before they lead us on Sunday because there's a, a, an overlap with praying to God with fervency and praising God with passion. Preaching the word with precision and praying to God with fervency is also what takes place when we progress in discipleship, in care groups, and in our small groups. Preaching the word with precision also happens just even in our quiet time as we uh, study the word and we preach the gospel to our own heart. To, as we consider what God, God's Word says and, and instructs us, there's a level of preaching the truth that takes place even within our quiet time to progress in our sanctification and our mortification of sin. Well, this prime overlap of having ministry pillars that are biblical and integrated together do support the ministries of the church, but there's also a great practical benefit that I wanted to share because as we come, and we'll have these up every week where we worship, and part of the reason of having them portable is so that we can take them wherever the Lord might lead us, wherever it's Knott's Hotel, or if it's going to be here this week, and um, a trailer down by the river next week. We don't know, but we're going to be able to take our banners with this church, and we're going to have an opportunity to focus on them, and they'll serve as great reminders for us. Whenever we see the praying banner, we can think of the prayer request that somebody shared with us in care group and asked us to specifically be praying for them. We can think of the 10 at 10 prayer initiative that encourages us at either 10 a.m. or 10 p.m. to take 10 minutes and pray for the ongoing and specific needs for our church. It makes us think of the, the prayer guide, and God will, will use it. 
the progressing in evangelism and discipleship banner will remind us of God's call on our lives to share the gospel and to make disciples. And we want to be faithful when we do that. And if you weren't here with us last Sunday, I just want to encourage you, if you're a member of our church, to go back and listen to that message. Because I offered a simple proposal, and when we crunched the numbers, we determined that if every person in our church were just to share the gospel with one person a week, over the course of 52 weeks, that's one person, 50 gospel conversations over the course of the year, that for a church our size, that's over 5,000 gospel conversations. And that is, to me, that, that fires me up. And for those of us that had a chance to even go out and, on Saturday, just for one hour here at a local um, shopping center, I can tell you that 18 of those 5,000 are already accounted for. And, and, and praise the Lord for that. And that's going to be taking place in your workplace and um, through friends and family and in your neighborhoods. God's going to use it. And it's such a blessing to see. Well, we're going to continue to feature the ministry pillars. And when we do start up our equipping hour, which is going to start back up um, in just a, a few weeks, we want to make sure that we get settled with the 8.30 a.m. service. And then our equipping hour will uh, take place afterward. We're also, um, we'll, we'll finish our evangelism training finally. And then we'll also have the opportunity to dig uh, a little deeper as we zoom in on the ministry pillars as well, because we want to keep those before us on a regular basis. Well, there is a correlation with sharing this information about the ministry pillars and today's message. And we're going to launch into an official study of a, a book Bible, or Bible book, excuse me, book of the Bible, that, um, that is, is really going to um, help, help us even grow in our capacity to see what the priorities of the church should be. And so after praying with fervency, praying to God with fervency, and seeking counsel from the elders and um, even from a few of you in the, in the room as to what might bless and, and benefit the church, what, what to preach on, the Lord has led me to the book of Titus. Um, and those that were hoping for First John, I'm with you. Uh, I, I, I love First John. I think that I even talked about the possibility of First Corinthians and um, considered uh, Ephesians as well. But this leads directly to the, the first point of our message today, and this is going to kind of be a different kind of message because we're going to provide an overview and a background for why we're going to study Titus. And so, um, please know that every time that I stand up to preach God's Word, it is my hope that God is using it to answer a question that people in our church are asking. There's a responsibility and a stewardship. If there are things we know and there are the things that we get, well, can we be blessed and benefited by studying a book that focuses on those things? Of course. And there's always room for growth, right? And so as I started to think about 1 John, and it is a nice, it's a short epistle, so it would be good to study over the course of the summer because I wanted something that we would be able to study over the course of the summer. 
It focuses on the deity of Christ, which it blesses me. And I know it blesses you. It affirms the incarnation of our Lord. It also stresses the importance of uh, being doctrinally sound so that we can fight against aberrant teaching. But I don't think anybody in the church is necessarily asking those questions. And then 1 Corinthians was 16 chapters long. So that was going to be like one chapter per week. And I didn't think that that was going to work. And then uh, Ephesians, uh, Pastor David Cummings had actually just preached through Colossians, right? The, the, almost the entire book of Colossians. And Colossians is the sister letter of Ephesians. And so many ways you've already had Ephesians preached to you. And so Titus was what the Lord put on my heart because it provides answers to so many foundational and practical questions within the church. How do we know what the church should look like? What should the church focus on? Who should preach the word? Who's qualified for leadership within the church? Who should we have in mind when we have a church service? Is it geared towards unbelievers or is it geared towards believers? How do we ensure that our church is relevant to God's plan for the church instead of what the world might suggest as relevant? What are the priorities of the church? And Martin Luther, who was known for being critical of some books of the Bible, had this to say about the book of Titus. Quote, This is a short epistle, but a model of Christian doctrine in which is comprehended in a masterful way all that is necessary for a Christian to know and to live. Powerful. A commentator remarked on Luther's quote by saying, I believe Luther is right. He is, once again, a surer guide than our contemporaries, for this letter summarizes the essence of the Christian life particularly with a view to what the Christian community, the church, is to do. Indeed, I believe the letter to Titus is a tract of our times, and the church today bears the marks of having neglected its message. The letter to Titus is a discourse on church health. In a day when there is much discussion about church growth and church health, a letter in which Paul directly addresses these issues is certainly timely. What is it that will make a church thrive? What are the key issues of concern in Paul's mind when seeking to establish new and healthy churches? The letter to Titus provides answers to these questions. And I was so encouraged to think about the impact and the testimonies of what I was able to to, uh, launch into and see the impact that the study of this book has had on churches' ministries. And I also believe that it's a timely book because as a new young pastor working and serving alongside with first-time elders, as we consider who we're going to bring on board in the the coming months and years as additional pastoral staff, we want our church family to understand what the qualifications are for those men. We also have men even in this body who are aspiring or who will aspire to the office of elder. And so we want them to be blessed with their understanding as well. And so, it will serve us well to consider the depth of the qualifications 
And we're going to be able to do that very early in the book. And though deacon qualifications aren't mentioned in the book of Titus, they're actually mentioned in 1 Timothy 3. I do want to take um, a, a, a step out of Titus, which all of them are pastoral epistles, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are considered the pastoral epistles to see what the office of deacon is supposed to look like biblically. We want to understand that. And we want to be able to recognize the people within our church who serve as deacons and deaconesses. Titus 2 also provides an emphasis on discipleship. And that will allow us to continue to dig deeper into that ministry pillar. This epistle also provides a good indicative imperative balance for me to preach. It encourages us to cherish the grace of God in the gospel so that we can glorify Him as a result of what He has done for us. And then it also encourages us. Then it spurs us on to be zealous for good deeds so that we can give God glory by the way that we respond and live through the enablement, through the empowerment of the gospel. God saving us for His glory is seen in the indicatives so that we could live for His glory through our obedience with the imperatives. And a healthy balance is required because both bring glory to God. And like other Pauline epistles, Titus really helps put feet on our faith. It lets us get a picture of what the church is supposed to look like. A healthy church and how it should function. Well, there's a second question in your notes, and it is, what is the background and the primary purpose of the book? And the Lord used the Apostle Paul to write 13 New Testament epistles. And Paul had a tremendous love for the church. Paul loved the church. So much so that the, the Holy Spirit led Paul's heart to write letters initially to all the churches. And they were written in this chronology. He first wrote to First and Second Thessalonians. And then he, he, he wrote to the Thessalonians through First and Second Thessalonians. And then he wrote First and Second Corinthians. And then he wrote Galatians. And then he wrote Ephesians. And then he wrote Colossians. And then he wrote this little short note to an individual, Philemon, okay? But then he got back on track, and then he, he wrote again to Philippians. And he, and he wrote the, the letters in that order. It was so funny. I, I just had to share this. I was trying to, I remember learning in seminary the, the order of Paul's chronology and writing the New Testament epistles. And I, my best friend, George, who lives up in the valley, I was just like, yeah, where is the order of the, Paul's writings in the New Testament epistles? Where, it was in a class. It was in a syllabus. Where is it? And then I, I started to write them out, and I, I already had them memorized, okay? So it was like, that was like when you go through ordination prep, um, that was already like, it was in there. It was scary. I just, I, my wife was laughing because I was looking for them up. Uh, I was look, trying to look them up uh, to, to find them, to share them. But my, my point for sharing them is this. Paul's heartbeat throbbed if, if for the church, okay? And that's why he was led initially 
to write the epistles. And then his final three epistles, which we mentioned are the pastoral epistles, his final three letters that he would write, first Timothy, then Titus, and then his last epistle, second Timothy. And that's how Paul ended his writing ministry as it relates to the New Testament canon. And Timothy, of course, was in Ephesus, Paul on the island of Crete. And I'll share more about Crete in a moment, but I wanted to clarify a common misconception that exists in some New Testament circles. Many are prone to believe that because these are pastoral epistles, that there is no practical application for non-pastors or non-shepherds, which is a dangerous thought because Paul always had the church at large in mind whenever he wrote an epistle, whenever the Holy Spirit guided him to record the letters that he wrote. We know this because at the end of all three letters, the Apostle Paul closes them by saying, grace be with you. Now our English language gives the illusion that Paul's expression there, grace be with you, Timothy, grace be with you, Titus, but in all three instances, guess what? It's in the plural, which is, it stays hidden in our English language, unless you live in the South, and then you got y'all, okay? And that's the, the closest that we have in our English language, or all y'all uh, would be what would be employed um, as Paul signed off. And so, the pastoral epistles have tremendous spiritual value to the entire church. And ironically, it's 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17 that let us know that all Scripture, right? All Scripture is profitable, right? For God's people. So the man of, men and women of God can be adequately equipped for every good work. And I'm not sure if anyone in our church has ever been exposed to this position, which appears to be making a resurgence with this new banner of contextualization. And I think I, I shared the story in a past sermon of the female lesbian pastor who serves at John Wesley's church, the Methodist church in London now. I was there in 2008 on a short-term mission and we actually visited the church and met her and engaged in a conversation with her. And she held strongly that the pastoral epistles were limited to the culture or the context of Paul's day. I believe we'll see this position grow even stronger in the coming years and decades. Speaking of the culture of the day, let's briefly talk about the island of Crete. Crete is the fifth largest Mediterranean island and it's 152 miles long from west to east, 7.5 to 35 miles wide, depending where you're at on the, the, the island. So it's over 3,000 square miles, so a significant-sized island. And it actually forms the southern boundary of the Aegean Sea, and it maintains a resolute identity and culture of its own with a primary relationship that has been established with Greece. And this ex explains the strong pagan influence that existed, and we actually see this in Greek mythology, that the uh, uh, Greek god Zeus 
was said to be born and inhabited the island of Crete. Zeus was said to be the king of the gods and the god of weather, fate, law, and order. And that is, as is widely written about, he had numerous lovers in Greek mythology, and there are even stories of Zeus lying in order to seduce mortal women by dressing up as their husbands. And I share this for a reason, because some believe this is why the Holy Spirit led Paul right at the onset of the letter which he wrote to Titus in Crete to share these words. Paul, a bondservant of God and of the apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised ages ago. I want to make it very clear. The God of Scripture, the God of the Bible, He doesn't lie. He doesn't lie. Unlike this figment of Greek mythology, Zeus. Well, this was to, of course, refute Zeus and, and, and the lies, as well as challenge the culture of the island that according to Titus 1.12, shares that even one of their own prophets claim that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And Paul writes, and this is true right after that. I just, so that was the rumor on the street, and it was confirmed, and Paul even said, and this is, and this is true. And the ancient Greek um, historian uh, Polybius wrote that it was almost, quote, impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or a public policy more unjust than in Crete. He also states, so much, in fact, so, so much, in fact, do sordid love and gain and lust for wealth prevail among the Cretans that they are the only people in the world in whose eyes no gain is disgraceful. So they would do whatever they wanted to get, whatever they wanted. And this reflects the general view of Crete in the ancient world. And that actually progressively worsened over the ensuing centuries. And biblical references to Crete are few. The Israelites really they didn't play an active role on the Mediterranean Sea. And so they knew the remote island chiefly as the home of the Philistines. And this is according to Deuteronomy 2.23. It also mentions it in Jeremiah 47.4, Amos 9.7, Genesis 10.14, 1 Chronicles. So it was was established. And there was this great movement of sea people. And among these Philistine immigrants from Crete were the the Cherethites and the Pelethites who formed an important part of David's army. And we read about them in 2 Samuel 8, 2 Samuel 15, and 2 Samuel 20. In the New Testament, Crete is only mentioned five times in Acts 27. And, then, uh, and that's because it was carrying the Apostle Paul, who doesn't even stop at Crete, but made a journey uh, around Crete. And then the letter to Titus speaks of a visit to Crete by Paul, who was said to have left Titus there. And so this is a very brief background on this island, but it does provide enough of a backdrop for us to see the legitimate need for this letter that Paul would write to Titus on the island. And this is a natural segue into the purpose of the epistle. 
And we'll, we'll, we'll unpack this, and this is the joy that we have to do. We get the opportunity to do this over the course of the summer. God used Paul to exhort and instruct Timothy as to what healthy leadership was supposed to look like, health in the church, and how to refute false teachers and their influence. And that's it. That's the purpose of, of this letter. Paul wanted to make sure that healthy leadership, healthy church, and make sure that you deal with those who are teaching aberrant teachings. The purpose begs the question, how would Titus and the church be instructed to do this? Especially considering the lackadaisical, deceptive, gluttonous culture that they were surrounded with with the Cretans. Well, there are four key issues that God led Paul to urge upon Titus and the Cretan believers as important for the proper order and health of the church. The first one was this, the establishment of proper leadership, which we get to study right away as we get to the qualifications right in chapter 1. Okay. Second, a recognition of a proper handling of error, which is also addressed in chapter 1 verses 10 through 16, and also in verses, uh, or chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, where we receive instruction about dealing with factious people. Third, gospel-appropriate living focused on discipleship gets described for us in Titus 2, verses 1 through 10. And fourthly, a clear understanding of the gospel itself in Titus 2, 11 through 15, and the beautiful verses of chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. And so, as we take this, it can really be summarized in, in four ways. And again, we're going to have an opportunity to look at these. Proper leadership, proper discipline, proper living, proper doctrine. That's really how the letter will progress for us. And what is also evident from this instruction and the purpose of the book is that God used it to sharpen the believers so that they could have an impact on the Cretans and the loss that were living around them. One commentator said, quote, Nowhere else does Paul more forcefully urge the essential connection between evangelical truth and the purest morality than in this brief letter. Another commentator, The dominant theme in Titus is good works, that is, exemplary Christian behavior, and that for the sake of outsiders. Why? It's the gospel being lived out. It's people seeing a converted heart. That same person that was, used to stumble in and out of the, the, uh, the Cretan saloons that Titus would reach and the men that Titus was discipling that would go out and evangelize. The same ones that would be cutting logs and, and chopping down trees to build things on the island that you know were, were, were living in Moral debauchery. They, this, was, this, was, this was it. This was the opportunity to show a converted heart and, and, and to really to exalt Christ and to exalt the gospel. And isn't that just what we want? Isn't that what we want, church? It's all that we want. We just want our lives to count for the glory of God. In the end, it's a summary statement of why we're here. We just want our lives to count for your glory, God. For you. Not to us, but to your name 
be the glory. Not to us, but to your name be the glory. How do we do that? Praise the Lord that we're going to be stretched by the word of God as we walk in the strength of God to fulfill the will of God together as a church family. Well, if you're interested, you might want to know a little bit more about this guy, Titus, whom the the book is addressed to. So let's just um, briefly just take a, a look at him. What do we know about Titus and his ministry? Titus was a Greek Gentile, according to Galatians 2.3. And if you're familiar with that passage, you know that um, he was, there was a whole lot of happening with circumcision and the Jews saying that it was still, circumcision was still required. And he was a Greek Gentile, so he, uh, he didn't become a Hellenistic Jew, so he could have um, uh, become a proselytic Jew and, and converted, right? He could have been a, a convert, and he, he would, of course, been circumcised and The point is that there was no need. He became a Christian under the influence of Paul and had become one of the Apostle Paul's protégés because in Titus 1.4, Paul refers to Timothy as my true child in the faith. And he said the same words to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, verse 2 to Timothy, my true child of the faith. And whenever Paul used that expression, my true child, he was talking about those who were converted under his preaching ministry. Titus was Paul's special representative to the Corinthian church during Paul's third missionary journey. He actually carried the severe letter to the Corinthian church. And then he returned to Ephesus through Macedonia and he met Paul in Macedonia. And he was... In addition, the leader of a group of men Paul sent to the churches in Macedonia and Achaia to pick up the collection of, uh, for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And this is documented for us in 2 Corinthians 8.6, um, actually 8.16 and 8.23 as well. And we know that Paul left Titus in Crete to set the church in order because Titus 1.5, and we're going to get to this very early on, as I said, he was to establish leadership there. And when Paul wrote 2 Timothy, Titus was with him, according to 2 Timothy 4.10. You know, Titus was a strong leader. Good friends of ours just named their son Titus, as a matter of fact. And I, I, if I could rewind the tape and would have got to this book, maybe before, we might not have baby Liam today. We might have us a little Titus. I'm telling you, it's a strong name. It's a strong name. So much so that Paul... Actually, one commentator shared that whenever Paul couldn't, he was unable to go somewhere, he sent Titus. And whenever Paul was unable to stay somewhere, he left Titus. That's the kind of man that Titus was. And Titus didn't need to be encouraged like Timothy. And someone might speculate this because Paul only needed to write Titus three times chapters, right? And, and the book of Titus. And he had to write twice as much to Timothy. And there's encouragements that come to, to young Timothy. It's believed because Titus's faith was grounded and because he was very mature, that was the case that there were ten chapters written to Timothy and only three to Titus. Well, what do we know about Titus's ministry? Really very little. We do know that the the churches on the island of Crete were unorganized. 
And thus the demand for leadership. Titus' task of setting the churches in order included dealing with false teachers. So, of course, everything that flowed out of the Greek mythological system had to be addressed. And people who were trying to integrate, I mean, we still experience that today, just even in the realm of psychology as things get integrated in with the Word of God. And so Titus would have his hands full. The Cretans, we know, had a reputation for being idle and deceptive and corrupt. And these traits were actually residues that came in with some of the Christians who came, came into the church. And part of Titus's task consisted of motivating them to change, which it appears that he was successful in doing. Why? Because tradition has this to say about Titus, who served as the first bishop of Crete. And he died there in advanced years. And there is this man, Andreas uh, Cretensis, who was his successor, and he eulogized Titus with the following expression. Titus was, quote, the first foundation stone of the Cretan church, the pillar of the truth, the stay of the faith, the never silent trumpet of the evangelical message, the exalted echo of Paul's own voice. Beautiful. What a testimony. And praise God for how he used Titus to have an impact on the island of Crete. When I think about Cornerstone and our opportunity to progress in our understanding as a church and the impact that we can have in Orange County and beyond, this, this excites me. This, is, this encourages me. This, this keeps that flame going. I, I, I'm, I'm excited. I'm pumped for the book of Titus and just the, the, the zeal Paul um, shares for the gospel, the zeal to be zealous for good works, to give glory to God. And as I think about even our, um, our pillars of, of our church, and so much of which is reflected in other Pauline epistles on um, progressing, praying, preaching. And it's all right there, praising God. It's all right there. And so this is what led me to the title of our study called, as your sermon notes indicate, Titus Together. Okay? And yes, there's a play on words there. Titus Together. That, that as we study this book, that it will indeed tie us together. That it will knit our hearts together as we see the purpose for, for why we're here. Living this um, what Scripture would call vapor of a life. And so the final question in our outline that we would consider before we study this powerful epistle, and it's one that each of our hearts will get to answer together this summer, how will Titus impact me? How is God going to use Titus to grab a hold of my heart? to grab a hold of me and to dig deeper and to help me to have a greater appreciation for the church and what the church is called to do. And again, if at any point in time, if at any point in time that there's something that um, we, we talk about as a church family, that we, we, we encourage each other and stimulate 
uh, one another on to love and good deeds that isn't reflected in the Scripture. In, in a moment, I beg you to come to me. In a moment, because I don't want to... The, 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 the Scriptures give us all the instruction that we need. And there, there is no reason to be... Uh, for, for Pastor John, the elders, or anyone else for that matter, to be adding on anything additional. We just want to make our lives count. And all God's people said, Amen. We just want to make our lives count. And it's my prayer that as we consider if, whether or not we're going to let this book grab a hold of our hearts, that we'll all answer with a resounding yes. And the journey begins next week. Well, before I pray to close the service, I wanted to remind everyone that there's going to be no closing prayer and response song with our 8.30 service. And so um, that's one of the adjustments that we have to make. And um, Praise Chapel is actually going to uh, come in um, and, and need to get set up by t 10. And this was a little bit shorter of a message. And... Um, we, we, we didn't read a, a, a psalm and um, we didn't have prayer. And I, honestly, um, you know, I, I had to make a commitment with being more concise in my sermons too so that we don't go over time. And so I'm committed to that and um, all of us are making commitments so that we can honor um, our time and our use of this facility so that Praise Chapel can come in and get set up. So it's only... 9.36 right now, and we're going to have a good amount of time to fellowship afterward. But let's take a moment and pray. Thank God for our time this morning, and we'll enjoy some fellowship outside of this room over back on our side of the building. All right, let's pray. And God, you're gracious. Heavenly Father, you're gracious. Your grace is seen and every facet of our life, and it is your unmerited favor that you've put on us, that your affection, that you have loved us in such a way that you care for us and what our lives are going to represent for your namesake. And I thank you for our church family. I thank you for a group of people that are committed to living for you and for your namesake and to make their lives count. And Lord, we're all works in progress. And we stand amazed at the cross because we know that immediately and positionally you already see us perfected in Christ and we praise your name for that. And yet we also see that we're not with you yet and that on this side of the cross that you've ordained for us to make progress in our sanctification to take the grace and the strength that is ours in the gospel, to continue to grow, to search the scriptures, to study the word so that we can reflect glory back to you. Thank you, Father, for the work that you have done already. Thank you for the work that you're currently doing. And we can even look forward to the future trials and the things that you're going to bring into our church that are going to allow us to trust you and grow more in Christ. And we're so thankful. And what a privilege it was to sing this morning. Not to us. Not to us. But to your name be the glory. I pray, Father, that you would bless our fellowship after this service as we depart. 
and uh, have an opportunity just to just talk about all that you're doing in our lives. We look forward to seeing what you have for us this week, throughout the week. We pray for you to help us to be faithful. And all God's people said, Amen.